Hey, Mama. I know getting meals on the table for your family can feel tough, especially finding weeknight-friendly meals that everyone in the family will love. There's a good chance it's why you're here, at least I hope so. Helping moms take the stress out of feeding their family is my biggest passion. It's why I share with you here, and it's why I created the Healthy Mama Cooking Club. If you've ever wished this podcast came with a weekly done-for-you dinner plan with a shopping list and meal prep tips, or maybe a recipe library with over 200 family-friendly recipes, cooking tips, how-tos, and hacks, well, it does, and it's all in the Healthy Mama Cooking Club over on Patreon. Starting at just $3 a month for access to our 200-plus recipe vault with printable PDF recipes, or $5 a month for weekly done-for-you dinner plans, plus the recipe vault and bonus podcasts every month, the Healthy Mama Cooking Club is the dinnertime solution you're looking for. Head to patreon.com slash healthymamachris or click the link in the show notes to try it out for a week free and join over 130 other busy mamas making weeknight meals work with the Healthy Mama Cooking Club. I can't wait to see you in there. All right, let's get on with the episode. This is a long view, and it's just not believing that whatever hard moment or month or year that we're in is the entire story of our relationship. How shall I be invites me to think, you know what? I hope that this relationship that I'm in with my kiddo is one that will last not only for today, but for the decades to come. So who is this person in front of me? How do I want to be with him? How can I show on my face and in my interactions with him that I am so grateful to be his mom? Living a healthy, balanced life is no small feat, especially when you're a mom. With meals to cook, laundry to load, work to do, and humans to raise, it can be easy to feel like we're in an on-again, off-again relationship with healthy living. But it doesn't have to feel this way. I believe living a healthy life has become way too complicated. What we need isn't a new plan or program telling us what to eat or how to live. We need simple, uncomplicated routines and information that's going to help us live our best, most beautiful life without rules and restrictions. Join me, Kristen Dofniak, holistic health coach, certified intuitive eating counselor, and mama of two for weekly conversations on what it means to live a healthy, balanced life, uncomplicate eating, and simplify in every area of mom life. Hey friend, welcome back to the Healthy Balanced Mama podcast. I'm Chris, your host, and I am so thrilled to share today's episode with all of you. This is another brand new topic that we have never talked about here on the podcast, and that seems to be a theme for these first few episodes of the Healthy Balanced Mama podcast season four, and I'm so excited about that. I think we focused a lot on food and movement because those are my specialties in the first couple of seasons of the podcast, and we've slowly expanded into more topics that are for moms finding balance as a whole, because we are whole holistic beings, and we want balance in every area of our lives, not just with our food and movement. And so I am having such a great time talking with guests about other areas we can find balance in, and a topic that we have not covered here on the podcast, mostly because I am not even in the slightest bit an expert on this topic, and I haven't quite found guests that I am really excited to have on on the topic of parenting. 
And then my friend Lori Beth introduced me to the Ulrichs. The Ulrichs have an incredible book called The Six Needs of Every Child. And as soon as she told me about this book, I recognized that it was definitely a different type of parenting book. It's not the type of parenting book that tells you what to do to become a better parent. It's a parenting book that helps you to learn how to be with your children better and how to connect with them more. I loved it and I like whipped through it the first time I read it. I immediately sent them an email and said, will you come on the podcast? They said, absolutely, but we're in New Zealand. We have to figure out time, which was so funny to do because I ended up doing this interview at 9 p.m. and they were at 1 p.m., so They are talking from the future in this episode, which is so great, and they are just so sweet and so gracious. They answered all of my questions beyond what I could have imagined, and their book has helped me so much in the last couple of months since reading it basically twice to formulate the podcast questions in my own relationship with my kids and and recognizing things like I talk about in the episode that my kids are so different, and that means it's important that I approach parenting with my kids different. But they have this really incredible tool they call a compass to help you recognize the different needs that our kids need and to help us to meet them. And they go over all of that in today's episode. So I want to go ahead and introduce them before we jump into our conversation. Jeffrey Ulrich, PhD, is a clinical child psychologist who has worked with children and families for over 20 years. Amy Ulrich is an author and human rights advocate whose work and writing has been featured in The Guardian and USA Today. Together, the Ulrichs are the co-founders of the book, The Six Needs of Every Child, Empowering Parents and Kids Through the Science of Connection, and share parenting resources at growingconnected.com. So they are not just parenting experts, they are also parents themselves, and they're a couple. And this is the first time that I have actually had a duo on the podcast with me, and it was so fun to hear both of their perspectives as parents, Jeffrey as a psychologist, Amy as a mom who has learned so much from him and is so passionate about how this has made a difference for her own kids, and I can already see the difference it's made in my own. So I can't wait to jump into this conversation, so without further Further ado, here is my conversation with Jeffrey and Amy. Hi, Amy and Jeffrey. I am so excited to have you on the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. We're so happy to be here. Thank Thanks you so much. Us. We're thrilled. Yeah. I can't wait to jump into our conversation. Like I mentioned before we officially started recording, you are our first parenting experts we've had here on the podcast. And I know we're going to have such an incredible conversation. Um, but I love to start with a fun little icebreaker. And I especially love asking this question to authors. So I'm wondering, what are you two reading these days, either together or separate? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I'm um, actually reading a book I've been uh, wanting to read for quite some time. Lisa Damore, she's a psychologist. She wrote a book on raising uh, adolescent girls called Untangled. Mm. It's a wonderful book. She's a wonderf- wonderful uh, therapist and very insightful in raising uh, girls, but also just teenagers in general. We have three boys, so I have to like read up a little bit extra for uh, <laughs> my girl information. I'm a therapist, so I work with um, adolescent teens quite a bit, and uh, yeah, it's been really helpful, really insightful. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm gonna and- have to get that one. At yes. some point. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> You've got girls, right? I've got two girls. Yep. They're only yeah. three and seven now, but uh, they will be teenagers one day. Oh, that would be yes. really helpful. Oh, you know. 
Yeah. And I think that my answer will reflect the fact that I don't consider myself a parenting expert. (laughs) So Jeffrey is the child psychologist and I am a mom who loves science and has just been so blessed to kind of live with this guy for the, for decades now and to be raising children with him and really have a heart to make the, this really important information accessible. But what I love to do is kind of just escape into stories. And so I don't even know all the books that I'm reading right now, but it's just those kind of frivolous, let your mind wander. Cause I found myself just getting stuck in social media loops, like just scrolling and just nothing. And I like, you know, if I'm going to just spend my mind, my time mindlessly, why not just read fun stories that captivate me and keep my attention? So Jeffrey will be reading these deep things and then I'll say, tell me about it. And then I just go back to stories, always stories. <laughs> I love that. I love a good fun read too. I definitely Mm -hmm. do like 50, 50 between, you know, the typically the books I read for the podcast, you know, a lot of nonfiction and fiction. So fun to escape into. So I love that. So I was introduced to your work by my friend, Lori Beth Aldridge from the elevating motherhood podcast. I know you were on her podcast too, and you guys had a great interview. Um, And she's been on the podcast twice now, actually. And so I'm, I'm so excited to jump into the science of connection and our kids. And I already read your bio, but I would love to hear before we really jump into the the science and the stories, I would love to just hear how did you get into this work? So how did you get into the work of helping parents to better connect with their children? Yeah, well, when I went to college uh, at the University of Miami, I thought I was going to be a marine scientist and that was really too hard for me. (laughs) The chemistry just killed me. So I went over to psychology and At first, I was actually quite bored by psychology, your basic behaviorism and other kinds of psychological theories. But then I was introduced to the field of attachment, um, which really interested me because it was about relationship rather than, you know, teaching a chicken how to peck a kernel of corn or whatever. Um, And uh, it turns out that there was an attachment researcher there at the University of Miami doing research. So I got connected with her. Um, and was able to explore kind of an area of attachment that hadn't been looked at closely, which was father's involvement, father's attachments with their children, which as a as a hopeful future dad was really important to me. So that got me on the path of the field of attachment. And I'm very uh, grateful to have been connected with a lot of the first generation um, researchers in the field of attachment. And it just had, it has so much to say Um for parenting, but the bit was that a lot of that research was kind of stuck in universities because we were kind of eggheads who just really loved understanding how child development works, but you didn't see much transfer to just your everyday parent on the street. In fact, a lot of that research was focused on what we call abnormal development. So those kids who have attachment disorders or Um, really uh, difficult circumstances or situations. I did my dissertation on um, Romanian-born adoptees who grew up under uh, really horrific orphanage conditions in the 1980s. Uh, But that wasn't really practical to just everyday moms and dads. And I had a real heart over the years to want to be able to translate that information to to regular moms and dads and the ones who are facing more extreme situations too. And I've done a lot of work in that 
that area with foster and adoption. But yeah, big heart for just your mom and dad at home who's struggling to get through a day. And so much of attachment science is practical in that regard. So Yeah. And Jeffrey and I met when he was in graduate school. I was an undergrad at the University of Virginia. And so I kind of feel like we have been talking about attachment science for over two decades now. Um, and so it was it was cerebral at first where we would dream about how it might interact into how we with how we wanted to be parents ourselves one day. But it really wasn't until we actually brought our first son home from the hospital that I thought, oh, this actually really does matter. Um, these things that he's studying, all of this this truth that we feel that both science and faith reveal about the relationships that we can have with our children um, has benefited our family so intensely. Our oldest is about to go away to college. He'll be 18 in September. And to just see how understanding the the human interactions and what human beings need to grow strong and thrive, how that's helped us in our family, I think that was so that was so meaningful to me and how we decided as a couple that we wanted to take that into the world because also i think that a lot of parenting resources just for me personally have made me feel ashamed sometimes i read a parenting book and i think oh you know i should have done that or oh i you know i wish i was that way um and so what we want to do is tell the story of our family in a way that just says hey we're human our kids are human we're imperfect our kids are imperfect um but here's uh here's something helpful <laughs> here's something that actually might offer you and your family some love and freedom mm, i love that and i i definitely found that in your book and I really love that it it pairs both the science and the practical side of things. And I have to admit, I haven't read a lot of parenting books for the exact reason you just mm-hmm. said. They oftentimes just make me feel like I'm just not doing enough. And I think that's yeah. true for, I think, a lot of the moms that I've been in community with. I mean, also, also I'm sure dads, but I, I'm mostly in community with moms. <laughs> um, and, and I think I really love that right off the bat in your book, you assure other parents too, that, you know, they don't need to be perfect. This isn't about becoming the perfect parents. It's really about developing these tools to, to better connect with our kids. So I really love that. And, and I'm glad that we, we started that conversation here with, you know, saying we're all imperfect. We're just trying to do our best. It's not about becoming perfect, but it's about developing these, these tools. And I love that so much. So I, I really love in, in your book, right in the very beginning, um, you start by talking about kind of shifting our mindset before before everything else from parenting from this place of doing to parenting from a place of being. And, and you talk about, you know, when we're talking about parenting books, about um, a lot of the books being about the things that we are supposed to do, which can create a lot of anxiety. And as somebody who has a history of anxiety, it's definitely something that's come up when it comes to my parenting, feeling like I just need to do more. And so you suggest instead, instead of thinking, what can I do? Shifting into how can I be with this person? So how can I be with my child? So where did the revelation behind this mindset shift come from? So was it from the research on attachment, parenting, and connection? Was it in your own parenting? Where did this kind of mindset shift come from? And why is it so important? So I'm part of it. 
goes back to that issue I was mentioning before in the field, in the research field, you're studying the power of relationship and how these, all these positive or important outcomes in general, in terms of our mental wellness and success in life relate to these relational factors. But then you get into sort of the marketplace of parenting and it's more about, you know, solving this problem or that problem or this problem. And the, and here's a formula for uh, a solution to that problem. And so you're chasing after these sort of problems. Um, And the reality is that's very effective um, because humans are social beings and we, we measure ourselves against our peers and particular challenge. Now, this is even more so than 10, 15 years ago. When I started thinking about these things is that what we see among our peers is a very, curated view of how they're doing right um and so we are we're just naturally measuring ourselves against those beside us and a little ahead of us we're seeing a very curated oh my gosh look at them they're doing that amazing project at home and i haven't done anything with my kids or oh gosh they got a scholarship and oh my kids they're not going to get a scholarship and um, if i don't get them in the right classes or what have you which is another point too i think Um, increasingly economic anxiety, this idea that, gosh, if I don't do it and do it now, and I'm probably already late, my kids are going to miss out on opportunities. And so I think that convergence, that just our built-in human natural question of how am I doing, how are my kids doing, creates a demand for solutions, right? Like, Mm -hmm. let me help you feel less anxious, because if you do this, then that problem will be solved. And I'll, I'll feel better, except there's always another problem to solve. And so going back to my research or the research of attachment saying, hold, time out, stop. What do we know? Well, actually what we know is it's not that you did this or that thing or this thing over here, um, that the big thing, the big important thing is um, what your relationship looks like and how that relationship becomes this um, what we call secure base or safe haven from which to launch into the world. So it's what's mm-hmm. going on there over the that long time span that launches you. It's not any particular trick that you used along the way. Yeah. Right. And the problem with a, a question that we are so prone to ask ourselves, and in particularly in this moment in time, this culture, what do I do? Is that what do I do makes you think that there's a right or a wrong answer. So let's say that um our kids are the same age and I'm having a a hitting problem, right? Like my kid is hitting me all the time. This happened to us. And so then I talk with you and you say, you know what? My kid hit too. And I did this three-step solution and solved the problem. All right. Well, then I think, okay, great. Now I know what to do. So I go home to my house and I try the three-step solution and it doesn't make anything better. In fact, things get worse. Well, what happens? I start to feel like it, or I should say there is a real chance that I will start to feel like a failure or I'll start to wonder if maybe my kid, maybe my kid's a bit of a failure. Like maybe my kid's a bit of a disappointment. And that kind of feeling, even if we don't articulate it, our kids can see that on our faces, right? And it starts to imbue the relationship that we have with them. And what attachment with the science of connection tells us is that it is the long view process over time. Like my child who was a hitter when he was two, and I mean like an extreme hitter, like whack me in public kind of owl thing, not cute. Um, (laughs) He's now 
this wonderful 17 year old, right? Like super sweet with his brothers. Um, and, but that was a difficult phase, but this is a long view and it's just not believing that whatever hard moment or month or year that we're in is the entire story of our relationship. How shall I be invites me to think, you know what? I hope that this relationship that I'm in with my kiddo is one that will last not only for today, but for the decades to come. So who is this person in front of me? How do I want to be with him? How can I show on my face and in my interactions with him that I am so grateful to be his mom and that I believe that even though this moment is hard, we'll get through it. That's the relational change. Yeah. And we use a a metaphor of a compass to talk about a tool for parents to have. And we hope that's useful for parents. But part of the imagery that goes along with that idea of having a compass is it doesn't tell you exactly what to do. It just points you in a direction, an option. Um, But the background of that is right. Like we are on a journey and we're, and we're not on a, a journey that's like a Google Maps directions journey. It's it's like a, a walk through the woods where uh, the trail is sometimes clear, sometimes it's not clear. We get lost, we we fall off the trail, we have to find our way back to it. Like that's a process. And this idea that we should be um, anxious if we ever somehow find our, whatever the trail is supposed to be that the culture is telling us you need to be doing this at this point in time. That's not actually helpful in the long run. The long run is, can you navigate life? Because life is going to be getting stuck, wrong turns, uh, you know, getting cut up, stuck, all these things that are inconvenient, unpleasant, but that's not the end of the right. story. And it's not right or wrong. There's that's no that, wrong way. You, I love that he says there's no, there's no wrong way to walk through the forest. There's no wrong way. So we just navigate it together. Yeah. Mm, I love that. And I love, I'm a very visual person. So I love the image of the compass directing us. And we def, I definitely want to dig more into that in a little bit. Um, but I, I want to talk about the, the idea of, of love, which is something that you cover also kind of in the beginning of your book and when you're jumping into the science of connection, because I think when we think of connection, we think of, you know, loving our kids and, and our kids knowing that we love them. Um, But in the book, you talk about love being, or love mattering more than just that feeling more than just them feeling the love for you um, from you, or you feeling love towards them, but that it's actually an essential part of our survival and our health, which is so fascinating. Cause like I told you before we, we, really started recording. I'm like, I totally nerd out on the science side of things. I'm like, this is so cool. It makes so much sense. So I would love to, to dig a little bit into the science side of things. I mean, I guess we're, we're kind of going back and forth on that, but, um, how does the science of attachment relate to our kids' instincts, this need for love from a place of survival and health, um, and how our responses, that's what you start to go into in the book or you, you dive deep into <laughs> um, how our responses to them kind of shape their attachment to us. I hope that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Well, the whole question of like love is an interesting one. I mean, it, love is a label for an experience that we carry inside of us. Right. And you know, I think in some ways that whole idea of love I was thinking about this as kind of romanticized. It's like love is for the poets and philosophers, right? Um, 
it's we know it's valuable and important, but it's kind of separate from the nitty gritty somehow, or like that it could be scientific almost feels like, well, doesn't that cheapen it? But, you know, scientists are, are funny people. They, they just assume if there's a, if there's a human experience or a human trait, there's a function for it. Like it has an important job to do in our survival and our, in our ability to thrive, or we wouldn't carry it around with us uh, after all these years. Um, and it wasn't really until the mid 1900s that psychologists started to dig into that question because, you know, throughout time immemorial, we know that mothers and fathers love their children. <laughs> but the question of what to make of that hadn't really been asked, uh, which is, you know, maybe feels weird to our modern ears, but and, until the mid uh, 1900s. And so scientists started to ask that question, well, what this experience that we could describe, like what what role does it play? And um, there was a man by the name of John Bowlby and his colleague, Mary Ainsworth, who tried to map out what that role might be. Uh, and it really came down to two uh, practical issues um, uh, in terms of human survival, right? Because if it's there, it's to help us survive. Uh, and that is you actually have to make it to childhood physically, right? Like little babies and toddlers are uh, death waiting to happen in the wild, right? Like they're defenseless. They can't take care of themselves. So uh, maybe love has something to do with this. And then in the longer term, uh, if you've survived childhood, you have to like know how to make it out on your own, right? Like you have to become competent to navigate the world. And so the theory of attachment really says, oh, so there's going to be this human instinct, one, to survive. So like, how do you do that when you're a little baby? And there's going to be an instinct to make sense of the world. And this bond, this human love bond facilitates that uh, in humans who take a really long time to reach maturity, longer than any other animal in the kingdom, because what it does is it keeps our attention on each other. So as a caregiver, this emotional experience has me looking your way and saying, what's going on over there? Because uh, I want to keep you alive and I want you to thrive. And in our children, they're just naturally like, if I have trouble, who do I go to? I've got this bond over here. I'm going to you with it. So those two things are what's going on. The scientific explanation of that emotional bond is like they need our help to become competent, to do the world successfully, whatever that means exactly, and to survive the difficult, physically difficult and emotionally difficult experiences of life, which there are, you know, are constants really. Right. And I, th I thought it was fascinating when you were studying, I think particularly orphanages in Russia, um, orphanages that were very well equipped. So we have um, everything that a, you would think that a child would need, like beds, food, complete you know, capacity, but without the value placed on relational connection. And then comparing that to orphanages in more impoverished countries, where maybe the children did not have as many material resources, but an abundance of care by the caregivers. And the outcomes of the children were so much better in those orphanages mm -hmm. where um, the culture placed a higher priority on relationships. And that really does echo what attachment science points us to, where it says, you know, the um, the the very very famous um, 
experiment with a monkey where a monkey is given everything that they need to serve. This little monkey is given everything that he needs to survive. But then the, the monkey that has maybe has less, but has is offered a rag doll, rag doll to hold on to has something to cuddle is the one who's actually doing better. And if you think about the power of love and that was something to hold on to, something soft, the hugs, the the look in the faces, this you belong to me and I belong to you. And this is echoed again across cultures, um, across decades, over and over again. I work with uh, civil rights leader Valerie Kaur at the Revolutionary Love Project. And I love the way that she frames this idea of love. Love is sweet labor. It is um, labor like we as mothers understand labor. <laughs> like labor can be painful. It is fierce. It is bloody. It is imperfect, but it is life-giving. So, lo- so love is this choice that we enter into to say, you are mine <laughs> and I am yours. And we're just in this together no matter what it looks like to anybody else on the outside. And children who have that have the basis for secure attachment, no matter what else is going on in their lives. Mm, that's so beautiful. I love that. And the, both the, the science and then just, you know, being a mom myself and, and understanding that feeling. I know that people say that you, you never really truly understand love until you, you have a child. Right. And I, I, I was like, okay, I get that. Right. And then you have a child and you're like, oh my goodness. Like I would jump in front of a moving train for them (laughs) (laughs) because this is, this is my baby. And it's from like that, that moment. And I mean, it was for me, I know it's not for, for everyone, but, or some people develop that love over time. Um, but it's, it's so true. And it's so, it's so interesting to, to hear the power that connection has on, on children, even from that really young age. So in all of this research on attachment, you discovered these kind of six core needs that children need us to meet. And that's the compass that you were referring to, or you use the diagram of a compass to describe these. And you, I really love that you divide them into two categories of sorts. So the needs that help us to be that safe haven for our kids um, so that they can explore and go out into the world. And then those that help our kids when they're in distress. So that kind of mm-hmm. comfort our kids. So I would love if you shared a little bit more about those six needs and, and maybe, um, I would also like to dive into some questions that parents can start to ask or, or things they can start to determine what their kids need. I know that's kind of a loaded question, but I just, I want to dive into the six needs because that is, that is the center point of your book. Um, and I, I love how you kind of divided them up into these needs. Um, so I'm just going to let you take it away. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that starting point one is just parents can remember, look, okay, like the preset here for human is I've got to um, embrace this wild, beautiful world and figure it out and figure out my place in it. And I don't like that happens naturally. You know, if you're if you feel safe, your curiosity will get the best of you. Okay, I'm safe you know, I have enough food. (laughs) What do I got to work with? Right. So our children are in that position sometimes. Um, And then there's another position they have, which is I'm tapped out. I'm stressed. I'm scared. I'm angry. My emotions are dysregulating me to use, you know, psychobabble language. Um, 
I need to come home, right? I, I need to recharge the battery. I need to settle. I need to get back to that place where I feel safe and settled again. So now the thing is like, you know, humans are tricky. Both of those things can sort of kind of be on at the same time and they're like conflicting <laughs> signals. And that's where it gets so hard for parents where it feels like uh, maybe there's multiple directions at once we're heading into. Um, but to, you know, kind of grasp the ideas thinking, okay, so there's in general, this moving out and then coming back toward me. And that'll look different whether they're two or four versus 16, but it's still there. And on that going out bit, uh, our children need our delight, uh, our support, helping them uh, as they move out in the world in a practical manner uh, and boundaries. So like, how far out do I go? <laughs> what does that, you know, what does that look like? Uh, and then on that other side where it's, I need refuge, I need to come home. Um, you need uh, protection. Uh, so sometimes we just have to step in because it's too urgent, whatever the danger is and comfort, uh, that settling of the emotions and equipping, which is making sense of what just happened there so that I can go back to the other side. So those are the six. Yeah. And so, yeah, just to echo all of that. So we, so our kids and all of us are born with these two competing instincts, the instinct to go out and explore the world. And then the instinct to, to come back and find refuge. Um, we go and explore when things are safe. We come, we come back in for refuge when things are hard and being able to do both of those things well is what builds our security out and in. And I think once I knew about it, like once you see, you can, you can start to see your kids acting in these different patterns and the most fun for me was going to the park with the kids, right? So my oldest was super timid. So he didn't want to go very far, but he would kind of run away from us a little bit. And then he might see a dog or something. So he's feeling safe. He's going out. He's heading to the swings. And then he sees a dog and he turns right around and he comes running back to hold on to our legs. Um, and then, you know, feels he recovers. He's ready to go explore again. And then he sees something else and he comes running back to us. Our third, by the time our third comes around, he has no fear. He sees his older brothers. He'd jump out of the car and he is gone. Like he is down, you know, block away. And I'm thinking, does he have, like, does he even have the instinct to come back? But sure enough, he does. He'll look over his shoulder and he'll come back. So you see it at all different ages and stages, all different kind of personalities with our kiddos. Um, but what's very helpful is knowing that being able to help them navigate both of these instincts well is good. So for our child who has a diff more difficult time going out and exploring the world, we focus on those three, on helping him with those three needs. One, delight. Like, we love you just for who you are. <laughs> Nothing that you've done. We just love you. So what do you need to be able to go out and explore more support? Um, oh, well, let's make sure you don't go this further than this point because that's going to bring up more anxiety in you, right? So that one, we would help more with the going out. The one who has a difficult time, <laughs> who will just run, 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 maybe past where he should, we work on, you know, you can come to us and ask us for help when you need it. Here are some other things, you know, we are here for you. Uh, that looked hard. Do you want to talk about it? So that for that, we really work on the protection and the comfort and the equipping. When things are hard for you, what can you think about next time? So I find it just very helpful Um to be able to think about the directions and then also to have that it's limited to six. You know, when you feel like you're just stuck and you don't know why things are so hard and you don't know how to get out of the way. Well, you don't, there's no right or wrong 
movement to go on with our kids it, when we look at the compass. So it's like, you know, I'm going to try delight. Like things are really hard right now. I'm going to try just loving my kid for a while and see if that helps. Or, you know, these different ways. It, it doesn't hurt to try any of these needs. And if that doesn't work, we try another one until we figure out, oh, this is the one that helps us get going again. Yeah. Kind of emphasize that last point because in some ways we are so culturally programmed to be like, oh, new tool. How do I use it? You know, and we want to jump ahead and make sure we got the user manual just right, you know, because um, we're primed to that way of like, you know, um, using something and if got to use it right. And if we don't, we failed. And one of the things we really do hope with this book and the compass is like, stop worrying about failing. Like, First of all, um, mostly you can just learn to follow your kid. Your, your kid will show you what he needs most of the time. Where it gets tricky is where your kid is moving in a direction and you don't feel comfortable with it. Like you don't want that to be the direction for whatever reason. Like um, we get uncomfortable with our children's needs. That tends to have to do with our own histories. Um, so we'll get stuck in a little power struggle with our kids because they need this, but I need you to need something different. Um, two of those, I do think boundaries and protection in particular, do require a little, we, we call them the taking charge needs. So those are times where we have to step in, even maybe when our kid doesn't want us to, right? You know, Especially you think about boundaries. So um, you can be mad, but you can't just, wail on people like that's a boundary i i you may not have that need for yourself <laughs> or recognize it but in the big picture actually it is a need you have because if i let you just wail on people every time you got angry that's going to turn out really bad for you kiddo mm -hmm. so yep here i am <clears throat> offering the need of boundary even though that's not what you would say you want or need so but in general amy's just right like we we pay attention to when we're stuck or whatever I'm doing as a parent doesn't seem to be working. Uh, recognize what am I trying to offer here? That's one thing. Just understand, oh, I'm trying to offer support here and it's really not working. <laughs> Maybe it's because support is not what my kid really needs right now. Um, and that could be any of the needs where we just jump to that and it doesn't work. Well, great. That's information. Just don't you know, don't fall into shame about that or, or get overly frustrated. Be curious um, and say, what what might I be missing? And the compass is meant to offer some other options. Okay, well, I think I'm doing in the support thing. What I've got five other options. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's just go through them. Mm -hmm. And we do offer some guidance in the book, sort of uh, one of the appendixes is sort of like, kind of a decision tree as you think, okay, I'm feel, I'll start here, see how that goes. That didn't work. All right, we'll go to the next one. So, mm -hmm. but we don't want people to feel an overly burdened to master it straight away. Mm -hmm. Just understand what those needs are. Like that, I think that's the, the, the important part. Oh, I, I think I understand what delight is. I, I can see what that would look like. Mm. I really love the simplicity of it and the the freedom to go, okay, this 
isn't really working. So I'm going to try something else. And I found this really helpful, even just in, you know, the, the month or so since I have really been, you know, I really, I read the book and then I dug into it even deeper um, for, to, you know, formulate some questions for our interview. And I find it really helpful because my two girls are so very different in their Mm -hmm. personalities Mm -hmm. and their needs are very different. So my seven-year-old has always been very, very independent. And for her, it's, it's been a lot of figuring out how to provide healthy boundaries for her, but also allow her to explore. And she doesn't seem to, she's very independent and she's a lot like me looking back at my own, my own self as a child. She oftentimes seems like she doesn't want support or, but I can, trying to recognize when she does need support and remind myself that she is only seven. And um, even if she's like, no, I don't need this. Sometimes it's like, okay, well, I am kind of sense that you need this a little bit. Maybe we can just explore a different way to support you in this, but the boundaries and the support are the two that I've recognized with her. It's, it's figuring out how to provide healthy boundaries, but also like fostering that independence and, you know, her love for exploring and discovering the world and going off by herself. And it's funny at the park example, uh, we went to a park this past week with my two kids and the oldest one, she knows the park very well. And she is good at boundaries and things like, like a playground. She's, she knows that she, she knows that she can only go as far as I can see her. And I know she's not going to go off. And she comes to me if she wants to like, there's like a basketball court over to the side, the kids can do scooters. And she asked me first. And so um, it, it took a long time to develop this, but <laughs> she's, she's really great in that. And so she kind of ran off cause she knew she could, and she was fine. And she would come back and ask and go off. And my three-year-old kind of just stood by my side and just kind of like stood there. And I was like, you can go play. Yeah. And she was like, and just kind of nodded her head. She just stood there and I was like, okay, I'm going to put out the picnic blanket. So I put out the picnic blanket and we had friends coming too. And I was like, and, and our friends are going to come and you can sit here if you want, or you can go and play. She was like, and it took her a little while. She sat in the picnic blanket for a yeah. little while. And when she felt okay, because she knew, I, I think, you know, my, my theory is that she knew yeah. that I wasn't going anywhere. I was going to sit in the picnic blanket or hang out with my friend while the other kids played. And she very slowly started going off and played. And, you know, I came and played with her for a little bit. And then I let her play with her friends. And they're just so different. And so trying to recognize those different needs with, you know, my kids are four years apart. And so there were four years of me learning how to parent this one child and then having this other one who is very, very different is so interesting. And so I think that the tools in your book are so helpful to, to really go, okay, so what, what does she need right now? And uh, okay, if that doesn't work, (laughs) I'll try something else. Yeah. And treating each kid as their own person. Mm -hmm. So that's a beautiful example where you're allowing yourself to meet her on her own terms, right? She's not her sister and that's a beautiful thing. And I, I hope our book creates more permission for parents to just see their kid um, with eyes of curiosity. That's at the core of delight, which is um, discover who your child is like and marvel at it. Like, <laughs> you know, take it in and see what you've been given yeah. um, and then go from there. But yeah, every child is different. And I think one of the things that people, they're 
a layman's <clears throat> understanding of attachment where people trip it up as like a, a good attachment sort of looks a certain way that would be similar across a bunch of kids. Like, like the kid who can go off and then come back like, Oh, that's a good, you know, that's secure. Um, and your, your younger kid might probably say, Oh, she's overly attached. And that's a bad thing. Maybe like, no, 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 no. It like, it looks different. The question is, is it secure, which is a term we use and, and really has to do with sort of feeling um, like one is able to use your parent at the pace that you're just your personality and move out and back. And there's not big obstacles to moving out and back. It's not, it doesn't matter how far you go in a sense. It's just, can you navigate out and back uh, and feel secure in that? Um, So yeah, like, it can be confusing to know how am I, how am I measuring whether I'm doing this right? Which again is that old question. That's actually not helpful. It's more like, who is this kid? What does it look like she needs right now? Can I be comfortable with that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and take a deep breath. If it's like, I'm used to something different or, you know, I have these expectations that what it means to be doing you're okay as if you're looking like that kid over there or your sister. Right. Just let go of that. And I just want to say, because I don't think we've talked about it, um, how much our own attachment patterns are influence how we parent now. And our earliest interactions, really the first 36 months that we spend with our own primary caregivers, our own parents, really set the stage for how we are wired to um, meet our own children's needs. And that can be beautiful and hard and is probably both for most of us, right? But it's been important for me to understand. So for instance, boundaries were very highly valued in my home growing up. So if my loud, rambunctious kid makes a big noise, right? And when I was young, making a big, big noise in the home would have been punished. My internal wiring just wants me to shut down that noise even if it's completely appropriate for a four-year-old to make a lot of noise in the house. He's not hurting anything. She's not causing any problems, but it just fries my internal wires. So it's that it's the pause. We also hope that the compass gives us a chance to pause and say, oh, I, I feel in myself, my needle, like my compass needle is swinging right over to boundaries, but that's not going to make things better. That's not going to connect me with my child. Where else could I turn? Or maybe I need to go sit down for a minute and logically remind myself that it is okay for children to make noise um, and then see where else we can go. So it's not only what does our child need but I think there can be some real uh, moments of understanding and hopefully loving, learning to love ourselves too. Oh, this is why I am this way. <laughs> I'm going to be patient and love myself yeah. and really um, and make peace with some of these ways that I am in the world. <clears throat> yeah, I really love that about your book. And I think that is something really unique that I haven't seen in, in other books. I'm, I mean, I think your book kind of is in a category of its own when it comes to the, the world of connection, but I, I really, I really enjoy how you encourage parents to explore their own reactions and, and how that might relate to their own attachment um, in the past. And so something, I know you have, you have a quiz on your website and you talk about it in your book as well. 
something you do talk about is kind of determining how we might realize that we struggle to meet some of our, our kids' needs and that we have where there are areas that are easier for us to, or, or I guess um, the needs that are easier for us to meet and needs that are harder for us to meet. So do you have any tips on kind of determining that in ourselves when it comes to going, okay, this might be harder for me to meet this need, or this one might be easier. That just comes more. And I think that's probably the easy part is this one comes naturally. The harder part is determining which one is harder and which one we kind of tend to swing towards. Yeah. I, once, once you get a, a gist of the, each of the needs that, so the simple thing to do is our experience so far is most parents will be like, when they read those chapters, they go, oh, that's the one I don't like to have to meet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not good at that one. For me, uh, similar to Amy, um, you know, I, 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 and, and this is how it goes. If, if that need was met in us pretty well, we'll tend to be comfortable with it as parents. Mm-hmm. If that wasn't a need that was met very well, That'll be a that'll be a need that I tend to get uncomfortable with because I don't have a map for it, right? That's that's how this is intergenerational. Like we have the experience of receiving that need met, and we go, "Oh, that's how you meet that need." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you pass it forward. Um, so I think the first thing is just be like, as you read and, and come to understand those needs better, and, and hopefully folks will um, want to uh, pick up the book, but. We go in more in depth, obviously, with each of those chapters, but you'll you'll have a natural response where you're like, oh, I just that's easy peasy for me. I love that. And it's funny though, some of them, if you're really like, oh, I'm yeah, I I nail that one. The second question is, well, hold on. <laughs> Do you maybe nail it too much? Because other than delight, most of the six needs, you want to land in the middle. Like you want to be good enough, which is also should take the pressure off us. Like there is like, there are no super need meters here. Like mm-hmm. that's not the goal. <laughs> we don't want to, we don't want to aim there. We want to aim to just be aware, to be curious and to be able to shift when something's not working. Because mm-hmm. if we over meet a need that creates a different set of problems when we run away from it. So I think it's paying attention, which are the needs we're like, oh, that's a need. I don't want to have to meet that need. I'm not good at it. And then the ones where you're like, oh, that's where I want to stay all day long because you're probably you're probably running into trouble with that need too. Yeah. Yeah. And we do, we put scales in the back at the, at the end of each of the chapters on the needs. We did put scales with just questions that are prompts to say, oh, which to help you kind of figure out, oh, this is a harder need for me. Um, this is one that I, that I meet very easily. And I think sometimes just learning to know ourselves, like if you kind of feel like, well, that's just a ridiculous need. Well, you probably might need to learn a little bit about it. That's what I'm like for comfort. I never, I never really learned to just sit with pain, like to just be comfortable sitting with pain and not trying to fix it. Just saying like, oh, it's so hard. That is so hard. Like, I just want to fix it. I want to take my kid's pain away because it's just science. Like when our kids are in pain, we actually feel pain too. And if we're not comfortable with pain, we just want to rush right through it. But getting them to health and learning about who they are sometimes means sitting with their pain. And so that's one that I've had to learn how to do better. 
Yeah. Oh, I can definitely, definitely say when I was reading through the chapters, I, comfort's one for me too. That's a little mm. bit more difficult because I always considered myself a fixer. What can I do to fix it? Right. Yeah. But that's not always what our kids need, right? They yeah. they need us yeah. to be there with them and to sit there with them. And I, I think it, it has been interesting going back to my kids being so different. Um, my oldest being a lot more like I imagine myself as a child, obviously I, I, I was living the experience as the child, not as the parent, but I imagine that we have, we have pretty similar personalities. And so it almost feels easier to meet her needs because I kind of understand maybe what, what I, what I would have wanted or what felt good to me as a child versus my other daughter who it's, it's more, more of an exploration and more of, um, you know, trying to, to really meet her needs in, in her own unique way. And right. so I think that's, it's really, it's really helpful. I, I liked the scales at the end of each chapter that kind of help you examine, okay, maybe I'm leaning too far in this direction or maybe not far yeah. enough. Yeah. 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 So I, I would love to dive into every one of the needs with you. <laughs> I know we don't have, we don't have all day. Um, and I also want my listeners to go out and buy your book. Um, but I do want to uh, to touch on a couple that stood out to me while I was reading. And I, I think I hear a lot from just kind of like the moms in my community talking about you know, different, different issues when it comes to their kids. I don't want to call them issues, but struggles when it comes to their kids. Um, but the first one I really want to talk about isn't something that's so much of a struggle, but I think probably my, my favorite need of all, and that is delight. And I love this so much because I don't think it's a word that I ever really associated with, with parenting. And so what does it mean? You've used this word a few times. So what does it actually mean to delight in our kids and, and how can it be so such a powerful way to express our love with them? Yeah, I'll, I'll nerd out for a moment. So um, Mary Ainsworth, who was the first person to try and measure this relationship in the, you know, formal setting, she had some scales that she developed because she, she knew there would be parental characteristics that were associated with different ways that kids navigated the relationship. And so delight was one of the original, original scales, <clears throat> but she separated that out from physical affection. Some people will like assume like you have to be a touchy feely person to be a delighting person. And actually it's important to recognize that's that they can often go together, but they don't have to. Um, delight is really about um, taking the time to observe, to notice, and be curious. I think I used that word before. And that's a real challenge. And I think, in our, especially in our modern uh, life, where we're busy, we're trying to get a lot accomplished, we're worried about whether whatever is supposed to be accomplished is going well or not. So we tend to, if we give attention to our children, it will often be to correct something, something not going well. And then we got to move. And if it is going well, we just pay attention to the other things that need to be taken care of. So delight's a real challenge just because it tends to get the crumbs out of our relationship. And what we've encouraged parents is to say, delight's not some big thing you have to do. It's really a mindfulness activity. It's giving yourself permission to not have an agenda with your child, even if it's just for 10 seconds to like pause the world and notice your kid 
and be and allow yourself to be surprised by them, not have an agenda, just who 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 are you? And celebrate that in whatever way, to be grateful for that. Um, usually delight will well up spontaneously if we're not overwhelmed ourselves um, because we just haven't given it an opportunity. Overwhelmed or too tired, that would be another thing. You know, like the end of my long day, I'm not a good delighter because I'm just tired. <laughs> <laughs> so I think a big part of it is, okay, how do I hit pause and just be in this moment with my child, allowing myself to discover who she is in this moment? And if I'm going to be intentional about it, what's a good way to set myself up for that, a positive ex- opportunity for that, knowing my own personality? That's what I'm Right. I remember the first time that I ever really <clears throat> heard Jeffrey talk about delight in a conference. It was in a church setting, church conference setting. And you started talking about a story that we share in the book, story of before Jesus started his ministry, he went in to be baptized in the water. And this the says that spirit descended on Jesus like a dove and the heavens opened up and God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And other um, ways that that verse can be translated, are, I, this is my son in who I'm delighted in. And something that you said was just like, this was before the miracles, before the temptation, before anything, before anything was really accomplished. God started, the, kind of started, kicked off the story of Jesus with a expression of delight, right? And I just remember weeping. I don't know why that was so meaningful to me, but it has really informed so much of the way that I parent, right? To start it all with delight, with this with this expression of love. And sometimes, especially when our little babies are so smiling and giggly, like it is so easy to just like smile and giggle, giggle back at them, right? Like it is just like, I delight in you. Um, but it's harder with our teenagers. Like it's harder sometimes to be like, I just love your smile. I'm so glad you're in our family. You know, you, it is just such a joy to be here with you right now. Right. But at every stage, our kids need to hear us say, we like you, we love you. And it's completely separate, like Jeffrey's saying, from pride, from accomplishment. And that is the wind in their sails. You know, even if they look like a hot mess in front of us right now, it is amazing how over time so many difficult behaviors or places of stuckness um, will we'll be able to get past them if we pour delight into them. So yeah, the journey of the compass begins with delight. It's the first one on there because it is about giving them the fuel that they need, which is really that love that we talked about earlier. It's mm-hmm. the expression of our love for them. And to provide context for that from the, back to that science view is because we are social creatures, our survival depends on acceptance that we are accepted as we are. And so the idea that I might not be accepted because I'm not, I don't look the right way. I'm not doing well enough. All those things are an obstacle to us to thrive. Um, And so we all carry this instinct to look for delight, but if we can't find it, we'll take what we can get. And so what so many of our children um, take as a, as, as instead of delight is our attention. That's like, good job doing this, good job Mm -hmm. doing that. So delight gets replaced with your um, approval, with our approval. And, 
And that's actually not helpful to them because now they need to maintain that approval because if the mm-hmm. approval's not there, then I'm in, then what, where, then where am I? So delight is actually, um, has a, has a special power to it because it, it, it sets our kids free to, to be themselves, to move out away from us, knowing that if they fall over or fail in some way, there, our connection won't be broken. Like mm-hmm. there's something that's bigger and stronger and proceeds like that story that I think God is telling us that in that Jesus story is like, there's something that's bigger and stronger and proceeds whatever you do from here. Right. And if and brain, <clears throat> brain development is so fascinating to me. So if our kids can't find it, if they can't find that love from us, that feeling of delight, their brain gets preoccupied with it. Right. Mm-hmm. So instead of like, where can I, I want to, I, okay, I feel that love. I'm going to keep exploring. I'm going to keep discovering what I might be able to master, what I'm interested in. Um, they, they get worried, right? My survival is at stake, even if it's not conscious. So again, if we take this long view look at how we want to help our children to to thrive in their professions decades from now, academically, anything, so much of it is about just helping them to see and understand that they are loved and accepted. They have a place in our family, even if they are, you know, not like their parents at all, right? They Mm -hmm. still, we, they still belong to us and we belong to them Mm -hmm. and that sets them free to grow. Mm -hmm. Mm, I like that. It was really, really powerful for me to have you in the book make the distinction and right now between delight and approval or pride, because I know that that was something that I know my parents always emphasized with me and I appreciate it for sure. They were like, you know, I'm proud of you. I'm always proud of you. And so that's something I've carried on with my kids too, is you making sure they know that I'm proud of them. But I really appreciated the understanding that it it's not about accomplishments. It's about yeah. just who they are and who they are being right now, going back to that. And so I, I really enjoyed that. And it's definitely made me, you know, think more about the interactions that, you know, I, I have with my kids and just delighting in the little things. Like my, my three-year-old really wanted to help me clean out the car the other day. <laughs> Um, and I mean, the car wasn't overly dirty or anything. There was just a few things that were in the back seat I wanted to take out. And so we went out and we're in the driveway and, um, I'm just like taking out a couple things and putting them in like a reusable bag to bring inside. And she goes, I'm going to go get a rock. I was like, okay. So she wanders out <laughs> of the yard and she was, you know, helping. And so she goes, and I mean, she's, I can see exactly where she is and she comes back and she's like, this is my rock. And I was like, wow, that is such a cool rock. And she was like, yeah. And so we bring this stuff inside and I didn't notice that she didn't leave the rock outside. And so we get inside and because I'm carrying the bag and we get inside and we come up and later on that day, um, the kids had gone to bed and I'm just kind of, they had tidied up their own stuff and I'm just kind of tidying up the house. And I look over and there's a rock just sitting on (laughs) just kind of like with their play stuff. And I was like, oh, the rock came inside with us. Yes. It was just such a sweet little moment. And I mean, it was just, it was just a rock, but I, I, it was one of those things. I was like, "Hmm, I did. I I hope that she saw that. I just like, cool. She (laughs) found a rock and it was just a special little moment. And I I feel like I can't remove the rock now because now it's a special (laughs) rock, (laughs) but those little moments, they really, and that's something I hope that I'm going to remember too. Those little moments, you know, delighting in them. It was just a rock, but it, I think it was more than, more than a rock in some ways. Mm -hmm. So I love that. 
So, yeah, you let yourself be surprised by yeah. her because that's not what you wouldn't think to go get <laughs> yourself a rock. Exactly. Yeah, and delight sets like, us free to just be. I mean, I spent before I really, really <clears throat> understood delight, like really took it in. There's so many moments that you feel like your kids are like they might need to be corrected. They need to do these other things. Delight sets you free to let go of that and just be in the moment and just be like, the rock is fabulous. You know, like, <laughs> you know, all those other things are going to pass away. Right. And I love your story. (laughs) So another thing that I really want to talk about to kind of go on on the other side of the spectrum is boundaries. So Mm -hmm. we hear a lot about boundaries with adults as adults, you know, as a term for adults. But I want to talk about setting boundaries for our kids because I think it's it's hard to figure out, or at least I know for me, it's been hard to figure out how to set boundaries for our kids that aren't too permissive, but also aren't too harsh. So how do we find that place? And is it different from child to child when it comes to setting boundaries? Obviously there's safety, but that's more on the protection <clears throat> side of things. Mm-hmm. Right? So how do we, how do we know how to set boundaries for our kids that aren't, that aren't too permission, permissive, but aren't too harsh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think the first principle of boundaries is just naming a thing is really important, like that there is a boundary. Children do not understand that, especially when they're young, that you are your own person or things are their own person and that their actions affect others, (laughs) that they have consequences. Like children developmentally are naturally egotistical. They're mostly focused on their experience of things. So Mm -hmm. boundaries is, first of all, just entering into this process of you and others, (laughs) you and the world, you and your environment. I have to help you pay attention to there's more going on than just what you experience. So that's valid in its own sense when you just name you. You crossed over something. We call it a boundary. But what does that mean? That basically means something else's or somebody else's experience, um, somebody else or the world had an experience because of you that could, that was problematic in some way. And that's a bit subjective. Like we create values when we name certain boundaries, like the, the things I might make a boundary for would be, might not be something that others would. I, I, we care, I care about the environment very much. I take my boys out. So I pay attention to the, how their actions affect the natural world, right? Like other people might not be focused on that boundary. So it's a, it places a value just to name things. And it's less about, I think, um, setting boundaries, uh, like apps, you know, oh, there's a rule. I have to keep it with absolute perfection. It's like, oh yeah, this is a boundary. I've named it for you. Can't hit your brother every, you know, your sibling when you get mad you're going to cross over that boundary again, but we're going to keep talking about why that's a problem. (laughs) Um, And depending on your response to it, and this goes, I think, to the differences between children, do you seem to be taking it seriously? What's getting in the way of you kind of internalizing, oh, I've got to start paying attention to how my action is affecting others. Um, And that's when we get into how do I help you take this boundary seriously? So I tend to avoid those situations where like hard rules always do this. It's about a back and forth and they're going to take our cues from us about how serious are we are about this boundary. One, I, 
name it, help me understand why does this matter? And then how serious are you about it? Are you going to pay attention to it every fifth day? Or like, no, every single time you talk to me in that voice, I'm going to call you out on it and say, that's not okay. Would you like to try again? That is not okay. And I think part of that, I think that this kind of goes along with that is understanding that we human beings want to feel like we belong to a group. Like it is, again, it goes back to our survival. So I think that we spend a lot of time kind of defining the family system and asking for their input. Who are we as a family? Like we do, um, we, we are a family that cares about the environment. Uh, we have certain ways that we want to respect women. I mean, especially raising boys, like I want to raise them to be, to respect women in a certain way or to respect one another in a certain way, to talk to each other in a certain way. But it's more of like less this top-down hierarchical, these are the rules of our families. Like who do we want to be, right? And then I think, especially as they get a little bit older, you can actually give your kids more leverage to set their own boundaries than you think you can. And a lot of a lot of the ways to do that is saying, well, what do you think? Mm. What would be appropriate there? Do you think that's an appropriate thing to watch? What would be your questions about it? Um, I trust your judgment is a really big one. Because if you say to your child, I trust your judgment, all of a sudden they start to think about themselves a little bit differently. Um, and you don't want to be foolish with that, but I've actually found that to be a pretty significant tool in the toolbox to use. I remember we had friends over mm-hmm. one one night um, when our youngest was about eight, and he said, we want to watch this movie. And I said, well, what do you think about that? Um, do you feel like it would be appropriate? Do you feel like it's the kind of thing I would think was appropriate? He's like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> we won't watch it. And then he kind of ran off in the other room, and my friend said, like, how did that happen? And I thought, well, I think a lot of it is because we just – we do trust them. It's not like you don't follow um, – and, and make sure that you are watching what they're doing, but especially in this moment with so much at their fingertips, with social media and any kind of media, honestly, that they can have access to, we have to teach them how to think for themselves more than monitor yeah. because we're going to drive ourselves crazy trying right. to box ourselves out. Like we, I try to tell the boys like, there's never been a moment in history like this one where parents are having to deal with everything we're having to deal with. You, we need them to be partners with us to figure out who they want to be in the world. Yeah. And I think that works, especially because we, you know, important, important piece of that working, I think, is you do take the time to, to assess whether your kid can comprehend what you're even talking about. Like, first of all, what do they experience within themselves around that boundary, even if they didn't have a name for it to begin with? Um, you know, how did it feel to hit your sister? Fine. Okay. Well, all right, we, we have a problem. <laughs> that can't be fine. So how does it feel when your sister hits you? Mad. Okay. So she, you love your sister and that's, she's feeling hurt or sad or whatever when you hit her. Oh, <laughs> is that how you want her to feel? This isn't in the middle of being at mad. Of course, this is later on. But you, it, that's what we call like helping our children internalize the rules, right? Because mm-hmm. if we just give rules and it, they, they're just arbitrary to our children, they're not going to be able to boundaries set for themselves because it's just, can I get away with the rule or not? Do I feel like, like there's no real owning it as, you know, and we want to help children own 
their own decision making. They need information and they need us to signal to them the importance mm-hmm. of a thing. Um, and so, yeah, I can't, we can't pay attention to every boundary, but I can, we can help them to be their own boundary setters by focusing in on um, why this matters um, and using their own experiences to help them go, oh, yeah, I can see how that is important for my own experience. That's not always possible. Sometimes yeah, I, you just have to trust me, kid. This will harm you and others, and I can't let it happen. Mm-hmm. But eventually there'll be opportunities for them to go, oh, now I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I really, really like that perspective. And I, I appreciate how everything is centered around coming alongside our kids and mm-hmm. and really helping them to to be their own great humans in the world <laughs> beyond, you know, just the time where they're, they're in our homes. Um, and so I think the last thing I, I want to really dig in is the importance of equipping, which kind of really is a, I think a good segue from this, <laughs> the, the boundaries and helping them to set their own boundaries. And so personally, I think it can be easier to recognize our kids need for support and for comfort and even for boundaries, But, you know, we talked about this in terms of boundaries, in terms of helping them to develop their own boundaries and understand and internalize um, consequences and things like that. So what does it really mean to, I know you go over this in the book, but what does it really mean to equip our kids for the future when it comes to making those mistakes and going through difficulties? You share this really cool four-step process, I think is a four-step process in the book um, for equipping our kids when these difficult things happen. So I'm wondering if you can just dig into a little bit of that, because that's kind of, that's the the last need that you go into is this equipping. And I think it is one that can be a little bit harder to recognize than, yeah. than some of the other yeah, needs. Yeah. Uh, going back to that whole compass idea um, and journeying, um, <clears throat> another concept that we is in the book and maybe you picked up on it is mapping. So our children don't have a map of the world. They see themselves (laughs) here and now, but it's a very small limited map. So they're just walking along, running into things and they don't make sense. And boundaries is a way that we map out things that they can't see that have to do with others. Right. Um, in, In anticipation often like, you're going to run into trouble if you keep going that direction. I'm, I'm, I need to explain that, map that out for you. In fact, if you insist on going that way, this is what's going to happen. And I just need you to prepare ahead of time. That's a map. That's giving them a mental map. Equipping is really another mapping exercise. It's over on the emotional side, though, typically. It's, it's when things have fallen over in some way. That might have been because of a boundary violation. Like they said, well, to heck with your rules. I'm going to go do that. And, and then it ended up badly and they're crying and whatever. But equipping is really that uh, retrospective debriefing, like let's go back and make a map of what was really going on there. Cause most of our emotional reactions are instinctive. We don't, we don't really know what's going on. We just know that we're feeling something intensely and we respond and that didn't work out really well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so this step process you're talking about is really what is there to map? Um, and, and one way to think of it is just say, okay, what are the facts? Like, 
what was going on. A lot of times as parents, we think we know what was going on and we're missing information. So one big piece of it is, can be curious, right? It's that really key concept of allowing curiosity before your automatic responses. And so what am I, we, I use this with the kids all the time. This is what I saw. What am I missing? Because mm-hmm. I'm pretty upset right now about what I saw, but maybe I don't have all the information. Um, sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. But it's helpful to name. And I, we'd ask the kids, like, why do we need to have a conversation right now? Because I hit your sister. Okay, good. We are working from the same <laughs> page. But once we know what is the thing, what was going on, okay, let's dig beneath the hood and ask two questions. One, well, what were you feeling and what were you thinking? Uh, human brains feel things and think things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we don't in real time often know what those things are, but they drive how we act. Mm-hmm. And our children aren't born with some... Um, magical understanding of their thoughts and emotions. It's really just action. We know there was feeling going on and thoughts going on, but they don't really understand it. And so that equipping is really about taking the time over time to say, you need to be able to recognize what you're feeling in a moment, um, especially as they grow older with more, um, um, more precision, right? So I'm angry. Okay, let's talk about Angry what? Uh, angry, embarrassed, angry, disappointed, angry, um, uh, frustrated, uh, tired, angry. Uh, look, all, all of our kids are going to lash out at times just because they haven't eaten since their 11 o'clock <laughs> lunch, right? Because they eat so, you know, and it's like, oh, you're so angry because you're tired. That information would be really helpful and has been really helpful to our children. Yeah, I mean, right? our like, kids will be like, I, I've got to eat. i got to eat. <laughs> and you think, okay. Because we map to- that. Emo- that's, a, that's a feeling inside that now has a name for them. And that empowers them to take charge of their own experience. And the same way with thoughts. Like, I heard you say nobody loves you. Do you really? Is that what you really believe? Um, yeah. Why do you believe that? Because you always let your... You know, you always let Josh do what he wants to do and you never let me do. Okay, well, let's take a look at that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so we're mapping their internal experience. And when when you have a better map, the world is less overwhelming and it gives you more options. Oh, so you were tired. You were hungry. How could we solve that problem ahead of time next time after school? I'm going to start handing you a bar in the car before we even start interacting with each other. Cause you start, you know, grouching at me straight off and then I grouch at you. And then that just ends up bad. Let's just eat first and then talk. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's the, that's the last step is what action needs to happen now with this new knowledge, this new better map about what was really going on. Right. And I think the term is mind, mind mindedness. Right. Mm. Um, So just giving them or what Dan Siegel calls mind sight, like it is one of the biggest things you can give your child to start to get curious and wonder about what's happening in their own minds and in the minds of others. I mean, one of my favorite examples where I just really saw this working in a huge way was with our then 16 year old invited to a friend's birthday party asked, I asked how it went. And he said, well, it was fun, but one of their best friends didn't 
didn't come, didn't show up for the other friend's 16th birthday. And he was so mad. He said it was a real jerk thing to do. And I thought about this friend that he was talking about, his friend who's a super sweet friend um, with very strict parents. So I said, okay, so I hear you saying that your friend was, was a real jerk. But, you know, I know your friend and I wonder, do you think it's because you guys were playing video games all weekend? Do you think there's any chance that maybe he wasn't allowed to come and he was embarrassed to tell you that? No, we don't know that. You know, maybe that's not what happened at all. But do you think that could have happened? And I just watched his face kind of change and wonder. He said, you know, that really could have been what happened. Maybe he just didn't want to tell us that. So we don't have to have the answers we're not going to have the answers, but just to give our kids this understanding that there might be more than they fully understand at first. And this becomes incredibly helpful, especially as they get older, and then start to wonder about alternative understandings of a thing, opening them up to that. And we do that by creating opportunities for relationship with them along the way when things aren't hard, right? We talk in the book about just taking walks with our kids or making sure, you know, sometimes we have times to drive with them and just asking questions, finding the times. Maybe, you know, one of your kids loves pancakes and you just try to go out once a month for pancakes. Creating these opportunities where, okay, this is a safe place that I know that I'm going to connect with mom. We have this relationship going. So it's not just um, something hard has happened and now we have to talk, <laughs> right? Um so just keeping these these um, ways yeah. means of communication open, especially with older kids, right? Because <clears throat> that coming out, going out, and coming back with our older kids, it's like a bigger orbit, you know, as they grow older. So they'll be holding on to hard things. They're not going to come right to us like they do at four. Mm-hmm. And so that's an example of how it's there. It just looks different as they grow older. And so it's mm-hmm. actually we make time for the comforting and equipping because you're carrying it around inside. And maybe I see it, maybe I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> how do we evolve with our kids as they develop? Right. And starting early and just really respecting their listening with, with curiosity to their experience, to yeah, letting that's right. them articulate that first from a very young age. The rock, I go back to your rock story, like Taking valuing the rock, right? Yep. <laughs> that kind of interaction opens up the door all yeah. the way through. Yep. Oh, I love that. And I'm just thinking how many adults would have benefited so much if their parents had (laughs) really helped them to, you know, process through their emotions and their feelings and learned how to take, you know, different actions and thought through the actions that they, that they've made or the assumptions they've had. It's so powerful. And I, I so, so appreciate all of the tools that you have for, for parents, myself included, <laughs> in, in your book. And so I'm wondering if you just have any last pieces of wisdom for my listeners or anything that we haven't talked about that you really want to impart them with before, before we end. Whatever hard thing you're going through right now, this too shall pass. And you will still be mom or dad, and your child will still be their, your son or daughter. And we're stuck with each other. <laughs> you know, just remembering, like, all the way through, like, we don't get to 18 and stop being in relationship with our children. And how we do relationship all through that space just continues on. And that's, if it's really bad for you and really hard for you not recognize it, it it doesn't have to stay that way. You can just keep walking and trying new things. And and if things are going really well, good on you. And um, 
that probably won't last too long <laughs> and that's okay. You know, um, just embrace this long view of parenting and uh, with curiosity and less pressure on yourselves. Um, our faith is important to us in terms of creating some space to not over control the outcomes for our children to believe God has a plan and purpose for us, for them. It's, it's not revealed to us in a 10 part plan, just mm -hmm. trust in it and focus on what we believe is most important, which is to love one another. And, and I think these six needs are what love looks like in intimate relationships. And so hopefully that helps people. Yeah. And I guess I just want to echo that in some ways and say some moments are just really, really hard. Ugh. And you just think, I can't believe that we're dealing. I, I didn't think that we would deal with this. I didn't know that this was going to happen. I mean, it's just so stunning sometimes. Parenting is so stunning. Like it can be so beautiful. It can be so difficult. I remember we had um, a moment where all three kids were kind of doing well-ish. Like we were all doing well. And I was like, oh, we're all doing well. And then I got this like wave of anxiety, but something bad will happen soon. <laughs> I just thought, Amy, can you not even just enjoy like the moments of peace? But I just, you know, we live in a world where just everybody is just broadcasting their accomplishments all the time. So I just want to say it's really just real for all of us and it's okay and it's part of it like helping our kids to get through these hard things and seeing that relationships are worth fighting for and that we're worth caring about each other in the middle of it all that's what makes them strong not perfection thank thankfully because <laughs> none of us can get that right but um i just want to thank you for what you're doing for parents and moms too it's really been a joy to be yeah. here and talk with you Oh my gosh, this has been so wonderful. I am so grateful for the work that both of you are doing in the world. Before we go, um, I will obviously link your book in my show notes, um, but where else can my listeners connect with you? We are online at growingconnected.com. And we do have a podcast as well. It's the Growing Connected podcast. So we would love um, love for you all to listen, love for you all to read, and we love hearing from people. So let us know what you think of the book, please. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day. I appreciate it so much. Absolutely. We've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. If you loved it, would you take a screenshot and share it with a friend over on Instagram and tag me in it? It helps me so much to know what you love and are taking away from each episode. If you really loved it, would you hop over to iTunes and give me a star rating and review? Every rating and review helps this podcast be seen and heard by more women who need to hear the message of balance and wellness without deprivation. It's the best free gift you could give me. And as a reminder, the information and opinions on this podcast are meant for education and inspiration only and are not to be taken as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with a trusted practitioner before making any changes. Have a beautiful day, friend, and I'll see you in the next episode.